It was just two years ago that we in the Commonwealth celebrated the founding of Jamestown in 1607. And if you didn't know much of that story before the 400th anniversary, you certainly do now. But maybe, maybe you don't know about a related story concerning the sea venture. This was the flagship of a major attempt in 1609 to reprovision the failing settlement at Jamestown. Now, unhappily, a great storm drove the damaged sea venture ashore at Bermuda. The survivors stayed there for nearly a year while building two smaller vessels from the wrecked sea venture timbers. And they arrived in Jamestown in 1610 at a dramatic turning point in the colony's history. Now, I'll stop there before I start stepping all over the toes of our speaker for today and give away the dramatic story. And fortunately for us, our speaker, Lori Glover, and her co-author, Daniel Blake Smith, have written the essential history of the sea venture. It's a story of shipwreck, courage, mutiny, and eventually deliverance. The authors make a forceful case that the sea venture bears no small part in the ultimate survival of English colonization in North America. And I will say, again, the shameless commerce section of our, of our talk, that this book is available for, for purchase and signing up in our museum shop upstairs. And I would urge you also to consider buying this, which is the reusable book tote bag. <laughs> it's just $2, and you can use it again and again to come back to lectures here and buy more books and take them home. It's very convenient. It folds up on itself, so I would urge you to do that and take advantage of it. Dr. Glover, by way of biography, teaches history at the University of Tennessee, and she's also the author of Southern Sons, Becoming Men in the New Nation, which is a great book also. I'm very happy to say that today's event is another collaboration, in fact, our second in a row, with our co-sponsors, the Society of Colonial Wars in Virginia, and I thank them for helping make this lecture possible, and I'd like to especially thank the members who are sitting here in the front row, Peter Broadbent, Jay Johnston, and Ramsey Richardson, for their help in bringing this lecture off today. So please join with me in welcoming Lori Glover, who will speak to us on the shipwreck that saved Jamestown, the sea venture castaways, and the fate of America. Well, um, thank you all for, for coming out this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, at the Virginia Historical Society. I went through the um, part of the exhibit this morning. I got only as far as the um, birds, um, and, and I thought, well, I could just stay here um, the rest of the week. Um, it's, a, it's a terrific um, uh, exhibit and a, um, a terrific tribute uh, to early American history. Um, I am going to talk today about the uh, shipwreck that saved Jamestown. Now, the native Virginians in the audience today and scholars who have studied early English America know pretty well the painful story of uh, early Virginia. Lots of what we know comes from the very famous John Smith who, who mapped the Chesapeake. Uh, the first permanent English colony in North America nearly was not, riven by a violent and chronic factionalism that John Smith was no small Part of, uh, located in a dangerous swamp populated by ill-prepared migrants who excelled at little more than antagonizing the Powhatan Indians and contributing to their own demise. 
the colonists, John Smith complained, were ten times more fit to spoil a commonwealth than ever begin one. As another contemporary succinctly put it, a more damned crew hell never vomited. (laughs) In the winter of 1609-10, the settlers in Virginia endured the starving time when, as George Percy tells us, a world of misery ensued. Better than 80% of the colonists did not survive that winter inside Jamestown Fort, and some of those who did resorted to the unthinkable, raiding the graves of their fallen fellow settlers and of Indians they had killed in warfare and eating the cadavers. When General Thomas Gates arrived in Virginia in the spring of 1610 on a long-delayed rescue mission, George Percy warned him that he would read a lecture of misery on our people's faces. Truer words were seldom spoken. The survivors looked to Gates and Admiral George Summers, commander of the rescue fleet, like they said, anatomies or skeletons. The ambitious writer William Strachey, a principal chronicler um, uh, of events related to Jamestown early years and usually given the fulsome description of all he saw, was overwhelmed um, and speechless. He saw more agony and suffering, he wrote, than I have the heart to express. England's second New World colony on the western uh, Atlantic island of Bermuda had an entirely different foundational story, but one that is equally well known to native Bermudians, but not to most Americans. Uh, the, The corollary in Bermuda to John Smith was George Summers, and he mapped the island uh, just like John Smith mapped the Chesapeake. This is his, uh, this is his map of Bermuda from 1610. Uh, Bermuda was founded through the happy accident of the shipwreck of the Sea Venture, cast away on the small island chain in the summer of 1609. This is Bermuda's flag. This is a close-up of the inset of the flag, which commemorates the wreck of the Sea Venture at their founding. While the Summers Island colony traces its origins to the 1612 arrival of the first intentional settlers, since July of 1609, Bermuda has been continuously inhabited, first by the castaways of the wrecked ship, then by two mutineers who feared their fate if they sailed on to Virginia and so hid out in the forest of Bermuda when the rest of the castaways made for the mainland, and then by Uh, the faithful three kings of Bermuda, Edward Waters, Edward Chard, and Christopher Carter, who remained behind in the winter of 1610 to guard England's fragile claim to the island chain and to greet the first intentional migrants who came some 18 months later. The early English, those who arrived in Bermuda after the shipwreck and those who volunteered to people the colony in the 16-teens, found on Bermuda, in many ways, the opposite of what the Virginians found. They found a perfect paradise, teeming with fish and fowl, marked by a helpful temperate climate, breathtaking in its abundance then as now. The Sea Venture linked these two starkly different worlds. Gates, Summers, and Christopher Newport, the most experienced mariner of his age, were all commissioned in the spring of 1609 by the Virginia Company to rescue the faltering colony uh, in Jamestown. 
Gates was to replace the truculent upstart John Smith, Summers to command the fleet and aid Gates on land, Newport to captain the flagship and ensure their safe arrival in North America. They left out of Plymouth um, uh, early that summer, bound for Jamestown, but uh, got sidetracked in Bermuda, uh, and in particular on the northeasternmost corner of Bermuda at St. Catherine's Beach. These three men had been induced to redeem the two-year-old Virginia colony that had constantly teetered on the brink of collapse. They would carry over a far larger group of colonists, men and women skilled at trades and able to build a community. They would relocate the principal settlement away from the swamplands of Jamestown Island, and they would supervise a completely reconceived government. All of London was enticed into supporting the 1609 rescue mission. Thomas Smith, pictured here, London's leading entrepreneur and head of the Virginia Company, undertook that year an unprecedented public relations campaign to recruit, in the words of Nova Britannia, adventurers of purse and person. In other words, men and women who would wager either their fortunes or their lives on Virginia. The architects of the 1609 effort were nothing if not audacious. 600 people would go in the largest fleet that England had ever amassed into the West. Listen to the language of the 1609 campaign, which is inspiring still today when we all know better. A right sure foundation have you, my lords, and the rest of the most worthy adventurers for Virginia, laid for the immortality of your names and memory. Sounds pretty good. Uh, which for the advancement of God's glory, the renown of his majesty, and the good of your country, have undertaken so honorable a project as all posterity shall bless. Profit and glory were tethered to Protestant faith. Again and again, investors and settlers were promised that whosoever hath a hand in this business shall receive an unspeakable blessing and shine as the stars forever and ever. Company literature, along with the sermons of Protestant ministers eager to counter the Catholic presence in the New World, sounded the same note assuring those who would invest or journey in 1609 that generations of English men and women would uphold your names and memories so long as the sun and moon endure. And it all worked. The new flagship Sea Venture carrying all the principal leaders, 150 of the 600 passengers and crew, and all of the company's directives launched with eight other ships out of Plymouth Sound on the 2nd of July, 1609. It was a dangerous midsummer crossing, more perilous because of the heat which worsened storms and disease, so that ambition got the better part of discretion. Still, the convoy made good time until July 23rd, when according to Captain Newport's reckoning, the fleet was about a week from making landfall. And I'm, I'm going to read a little bit from the book so you can get a feel for um, what they endured. From out of the northeast, 
A dreadful storm and hideous began to blow, swelling and roaring until it darkened the sky as to beat all light from heaven. This was a tempest that in its restless tumult would not relent. Even experienced seamen on board struggled with sails whipped around and rendered useless by the merciless wind. William Strachey um, had certainly seen fierce storms before. He had traveled near the coast of Barbary and Algiers, yet nothing compared to the suffering he now witnessed. There was not a moment, he wrote, in which the sudden splitting or instant oversetting of the ship was not expected, and it never abated. Fury added to fury, and one storm urging a second more outrageous than the former. The Sea Venture was facing down a hurricane, and all the shrieks and hurly and discomfort left everyone on board with troubled hearts and panting bosoms, and it was about to worsen. Newport and his men lost sight of the rest of the ships in the convoy. Then passengers discovered that the storm, storm had forced a mighty leak in the ship. Within no time, with every joint having spewed out her caulking before we were aware, the water rose five feet deep above the ballast. And Strachey wrote, we almost drowned within whilst we sat looking when to perish from above. As the water level in the ship rose before their eyes, passengers and crew frantically searched for the source of the leak. With candles in hand, men crept along the sides and corners of the ship, looking and listening for water seeping in. At one point, they suspected the leak had begun in the breadroom, whereupon Strachey reported, the carpenter went down and ripped up all the room, but could not find it. Water kept pouring in so that the leakage appeared as a wound given to a man that were before dead. Governor Gates, throwing all matters of class and rank aside, divided the entire company, save the women, into three groups that worked around the clock bailing water from the sinking ship. He ordered cargo, armaments, whatever weighed down the vessel thrown overboard. Men jettisoned hogsheads of oil, cider, wine, and vinegar, along with ordnance and passengers' lug luggage, and even considered cutting down the main mast. Anything to lighten the load as water flooded the hold. For three full days, not only the common sort, stripped naked as men in galleys, but every man on board took his turn with the bucket or the pump, and still the water seemed rather to increase than to diminish. Admiral Summers, took, meanwhile, took charge of the vessel and fought the seas to keep her as upright as he could. With no food and little sleep, he remained on the upper deck, for three days and three nights altogether. Despite these valiant efforts, by the fourth morning, ocean water covered the ship from stern to stem like a garment or a vast cloud. And dread of the inevitable washed over everyone. The wind and rain even drowned out the passengers' prayers so that there was nothing heard that could give comfort, nothing seen that might encourage hope. It seemed that the men and women on the Sea Venture would never reach the land that ministers in London had promised God was saving for them. With hearts beating and breaths heaving, the passengers and crew realized they were sinking. For my part, Strachey confessed, I thought her already at the bottom of the sea. By Friday, July 28, after futilely bailing water for days, the passengers and crew were ready to give up. A few sailors, resigning themselves to death, broke into the remaining liquor supply for a final toast. <laughs> <laughs>
Others shut up the hatches and, commending our sinful souls to God, committed the ship to the mercy of the gale. But the hurricane did not, of course, uh, kill everyone on board the Sea Venture. If it had, we wouldn't have known that great story. Uh, Rather, it separated the Sea Venture from the mission in Virginia and cast away the voyagers on Bermuda. The failure of the leaders to make it to Jamestown threw the colony into a political tailspin, and the turmoil at Jamestown was further exacerbated by the arrival of 450 leaderless colonists, those in the rest of the convoy, who straggled in sick with badly damaged boats, nearly no supplies having, like the Sea Venture folks, jettisoned theirs in the hurricane, and too late in the summer to plant. Those 450 crowded in on 80, already unable to provide for themselves and devastated by yet more failed promises out of London. And that's when the chaos of the winter of 1609-10 ensued. On a superficial level then, Bermuda and Virginia shared little in common in the early 17th century aside from this vessel. In many ways, they were in fact each other's opposite. Virginia was promoted in the Imperial Center in promotional tracks like Nova Britannia as a land of milk and honey, where seeds grew, if only casually, strewn on the ground, where fish abounded in the streams with such plenty that they risked capsizing men's boats, and where native people waited patiently and peacefully for the English to enlighten them with true religion. In 1600, uh, between 1607 and 1609, devastated voyagers saw nearly immediately the difference between Virginia's reputation and its reality, which could, have not, could not have been more stark. The same, in the reverse, might be said of Bermuda. This is a satellite image of Bermuda, 22 miles long and about two miles across. Bermuda... Uh, had an infamous reputation uh, as a dangerous, diabolical place, and that reputation had spread across Europe in the century before the Jamestown adventure. The more superstitious of mariners saw it as, one man wrote, an enchanted den of furies and devils, the most dangerous, unfortunate, and forlorn place in the world. Uh, Sailors swapped tales of the Isle of Devils, which is what Bermuda was called in the 17th century. But in fact, uh, as was inversely the case in Virginia, these tales could not have been farther from the truth. Uh, Ringing Bermuda are coral reefs. You can see them on the satellite picture. They're the northernmost um, in the world, and that's what caused shipwrecks around Bermuda. Um, That's what they would have seen as they approached the shore. So that's what Bermuda looks like from air and from land. Um, The terrifying noises that emanated from the island chain and fueled mariners' terror came from wild pigs, marooned in long-forgotten shipwrecks, and nocturnal birds, Bermuda's once-threatened and now-thriving cahows. Within days, the 1609 castaways found themselves delivered to a new Eden, and not the shimra that their contemporaries found in Virginia, but a land that was, was, as one observer put it, fertile, plentiful, safe, secure, temperate, rich, sweet, and healthful. So there are all sorts of animals, 
they feasted on turtles and fish, and uh, those birds are the cahows. And it's also an incredibly um, beautiful and um, uh, sort of exotic physical environment. But like all supposed paradises, this one soon led to trouble. And here we begin to see some similarities between the truculent Jamestown colonists and the castaways on Bermuda. As you might imagine, Thomas Gates, pictured here, took a dim view of his subjects being seduced by the ease and plenty they found on Bermuda and spending their time lolling around enjoying the pleasures of the islands. His goal, which he was intent on reminding them was their duty, was getting on with the business of saving Virginia. So he put them to work, building boats, using the abundant available supply of cedar on Bermuda, and materials scavenged from the Sea Venture. And this is, uh, if any of you have been or go to St. George's uh, in Bermuda, this is a, a replica of one of the two ships, a life-size replica of one of the two ships that they built under Gates's command. Building those boats was hard, backbreaking, and unanticipated work, which some men resented and some resisted. The pleasures of Bermuda contrasted so obviously with the miserable conditions that the castaways knew lay ahead in Virginia that mutinies soon surfaced, soon surfaced uh, among disgruntled laborers who intuited that a short life in the death trap that was Jamestown no longer represented their best interest. Among the various mutinous castaways, some based their challenge um, on religious conviction. Stephen Hopkins, for example, a dissenting Puritan, offered a strong challenge to authority on Bermuda. In his view, while they were on the boat, Newport uh, and Summers had to be obeyed. Once they got to Virginia, Gates would be in charge. But after the shipwreck, which he decided was um, divine intervention, a new life had commenced on Bermuda, one that none of the three leaders rightly controlled. If we look a little deeper, then, the story of Virginia and the story of Bermuda shared more in common than the Sea Venture wreck, their mutually distortive re uh, reputations, and a predilection among some of the migrants to fomenting rebellion. There's a third leg to this stool, so to speak, and to understand how fully and faithfully interwoven were the stories of these first two permanent English colonies in the New World, we need to return to the point of origin for both, and that's London. To understand the early history of Bermuda and Virginia, we must move beyond thinking of them as colonies and perceive them as two parts of a company, our gaze must move beyond Jamestown Ford and St. Catherine's Beach. We need to appreciate Bermuda and Virginia as part of late 16th, early 17th century English entrepreneurial ambition, international competition, and religious fervor. In particular, we need to understand the company that owned the two colonies. Uh, and we need to understand the world not just of John Smith, but of Thomas Smith. 
Thomas Smith was the visionary behind the Virginia Enterprise and its Summers Island subsidiary. When he became head of the Virginia Company, which initially ran both the Virginia and Bermuda colonies, he also headed the East India Company, the Levant Company. He was deeply involved in the Spanish and Muscovy Companies, as well as the Merchant Adventurers. And the timing of the launch of the Virginia Company was shaped by these other enterprises, in particular by the profitable return of the first two fleets sent out by the East India Company. They arrived back in London in 1603 and in 1606. And so that success in the East emboldened Smith and London's leading entrepreneurs to wager on the West. And profits in Bermuda in the first year the colony operated kept those entrepreneurs engaged in their ambition and faithful to their still floundering outpost on the mainland. That was Virginia. Bermuda's central role in ensuring England's commitment to Virginia in particular and its Atlantic interest in general cannot be understood apart from Protestant faith and in particular from the providential thinking of English Protestants. In investigating the story of the Sea Venture, I confronted again and again an issue that complicated much of what I thought I knew about colonial Virginia, and that was the pervasive presence of religion. So there's a link between St. Paul's Cathedral and St. Paul's Cross, which is in the background, and Jamestown. While the migrants into the Virginia colony might not have been a particularly pious lot, although I would argue that more were religiously motivated than most scholars have acknowledged, but even if they're not particularly pious, Protestant faith and its inverse, virulent anti-Catholicism, suffused the fundraising and promotional campaigns of the Virginia Company. The writings of men employed by the Virginia Company to attract investors and those of ministers who saw Virginia as the main chance to beat back the Catholics sounded the same note. In Nova Britannia, commissioned by the company, for example, Robert Johnson wrote, We seek nothing less than the cause of God. A sermon preached by Daniel Price that year and later published said that Virginia was an endeavor wherein every Christian ought to set his helping hand. The Sea Venture story told over and over again as confirmation of God's design for an English America intensified this religious language. Published accounts by survivors depicted their redemption as guided by God. He had saved them from drowning in the sea. He preserved them on Bermuda. He watched over them as they sailed on to Virginia. And most importantly most self-servingly importantly, God intended the English to prevail in the New World. (laughs) Correspondence between Virginia Company insiders echoed this theme and ministers seized on it. London minister William Crashaw typically proclaimed, if ever the hand of God appeared in the action of man, it is here most evident. Now, most historians have either ignored the role of faith in England's early forays into the West, or dismissed it as manipulative, insincere campaigning for investors uh, or migrants. But the language of religious conviction in the sources 
particularly after word of the survival of the sea venture reached London, is simply too widespread and too forceful to dismiss. It appears too consistently from too many different quarters to be discounted. The English told themselves that God wanted them to triumph in the West. I I should say, I I need to explain that I believe they believed that. I I do not believe that myself, Um, but, but certainly they believed it, that God wanted them to triumph in the West, or as one minister rather baldly put it, run the papist back into their serpent holes. The Sea Venture ordeal, chronicled not just by Strachey, but also uh, by Sylvester Jourdain in this pamphlet, uh, seemed to uh, Britons, uh, English people in the 17th century, as confirmation that God Almighty hath some great work of wonder planned for England. And Bermuda was sure confirmation of England's destiny. God, they maintained, had saved Bermuda for them so that he might bring their plan for an English Protestant-dominated New World to fruition. As one minister put it, the king of kings hath kept these islands from the king of Spain. (laughs) And all other kings in the world, till now, that it hath pleased his holy majesty to bestow them upon the king of England. And that was from a minister's preface to Jordan's account of, um, uh, of his odyssey. Now, to be sure, profit-seeking was also very much at play in England's vision for Bermuda, just as it was paramount in Virginia. The Virginia Company, which again operated the Summers Island Company as a subsidiary for many years, pledged that anyone who worked to build this second New World colony could expect wealth and renown to follow. Unlike the Virginia propaganda, though, the claims they made about Bermuda turned out generally to be true. The English men and women who migrated there enjoyed a healthy climate and diet and lower mortality rates than their contemporaries in England and far lower mortality rates than their neighbors uh, uh, over in Virginia. By 1624, just 10 years into the Bermuda wing of the enterprise, as the Virginia Company is collapsing, nine forts and a militia were in place on the islands. Ministers led services at six churches, and 2,500 residents were governed in part by an elected assembly. Bermuda, in short, had become a model English colony and an inspiration to continued Western enterprises, all of which was of terrific concern to the King of Spain. Philip, upon learning of the Virginia Company's expansion onto Bermuda, feared that the colony would provide the English an entree into the Spanish-dominated Caribbean, and with good cause. As you can see from this map, Bermuda lay at a vital strategic position for the English to police traffic to and from the Americas. John Smith predicted that Bermuda would prove an excellent bit to rule a great horse. And King Philip's advisors knew, as did leaders in London, that is, one of his advisors wrote him, everything what comes from the Indies must pass to the south or north of it. Leaders of the Council of the Indies feared, again, 
rightly so, that if the English established a foothold on Bermuda, they will continue to spread to these parts from which very grave detriment may result. And the English saw exactly the same thing. So while uh, the English envisioned Bermuda and Virginia as a means to fulfill their commission from God, they were also deeply interested in temporal matters. Bermuda and Virginia were promoted as, they wrote, two American hands, ears, feet, two eyes for defense, two keys for offense, two arms to get, encompass, embrace, two fists to strike. Bermuda, they believed, would prop up the mainland colony, providing close access to much-needed supplies. It would resupply ships traveling from England to the mainland. Once fortified, it would be impregnable to foreign assault, but also ideally located for raiding Spanish vessels. It could be the wedge to counter the Spanish domination of the lucrative Caribbean all of which was tremendous and truthful PR to inspire continued investment in England's Western colonization efforts. In recent years, scholars who write about the Atlantic world have rightly reminded us that no one in the 17th century would have relegated the Caribbean to the peripheries in the manner that many colonial historians have done. This is doubly true for Bermuda, which easily fits neither into the Caribbean framework nor the story of the North American seaboard and has received surprisingly little attention from um, uh, historians. In fact, in the early 17th century, the Summers Island colony attracted far more positive attention in London than the Virginia Company's mainland colony did. It even turned profit in its first year, a feat that the Virginia Company's first colony had never accomplished when the company collapsed in 1624. Now, it didn't take long for the Bermudans to run out of land so that the long-term payoff of the Summers Island investment could not compare with the long-term payoff of the mainland of North America. But at a critical moment, at the origins of England's colonization of the Americas, Bermuda offered a desperately needed counterpoint to the disaster that was Virginia and provided profit and hope to Londoners still intrigued about investing in the West, but skittish because of Jamestown. Bermuda offered a compelling model of how England might make the successful transition from overseas trading to transplantation, from commercial interest to a colonial presence. Bermuda was, in short, the gateway to English Western colonization. Finally, the Sea Venture story forcefully reminds us of the importance of serendipity in history. The most important road can often be the most unlikely. When Christopher Newport tried to steer the sinking sea venture toward Bermuda, the boat somehow managed to get wedged between two outgrowths in the island's dangerous coral reefs. Instead of crashing into the reefs, which would surely have resulted in the drowning of many, if not most, of the voyagers, 
Instead of that, the ship rested securely enough so that everyone on board and their dog made it to shore. And mariners, in fact, were able, able to return many times to the ship and strip it of its rigging. Without those supplies, they could never have built seaworthy vessels. Bermuda's largest trees, the only ones suitable for building boats, were tall cedars. Cedar, unlike oak and most other woods, requires no seasoning, and it needs a little caulking, which was extraordinarily lucky since the castaways had nearly no tar or oakum. Had the winds from Florida carried different seeds to Bermuda, the castaways might never have been able to build those boats, which they aptly named the Patience and the Deliverance, and on which they arrived in Virginia on the 24th of May, 1610. Without being literally forced to explore Bermuda, the English might have continued to avoid the islands, as Spain and France had long done, and thereby have missed the chance to use the islands as an entree into the Caribbean. Without the drama of the sea venture ordeal, promoters would have had far more of an uphill battle to convince investors to stick with the Jamestown enterprise. And let's not forget that, believing that Summers and Gates and Newport were dead, the Virginia Company organized another rescue mission, this one headed by the Lord Delaware. He serendipitously met Gates halfway up the James River on the 8th of June, 1610. Gates and the Virginia colonists were on the patience and the deliverance, heading down the river to Newfoundland to try and catch a ride back home, having abandoned Jamestown. Some of the vacating colonists wanted to destroy the fort, but Gates had stopped them in the hope that someone someday might return to Virginia. He, of course, had no idea that he would be the beneficiary of that decision within 72 hours. Nor could he have known that generations of Westerners would know his story, but probably not his name. The Odyssey of the Sea Venture Voyagers has meaning not only for historians, but literary critics and theater goers as well. If the story sounds a bit familiar, that's because it is. In addition to inspiring Londoners' continued commitment to Western adventuring, the story of the wreck and redemption of the sea venture inspired London's greatest playwright. The Tempest, Shakespeare's last major play, was first mounted in 1611, just months after all of London, including the Bard, heard this remarkable story. And just as the city was gearing up for the launch of the Summers Island subsidiary of the Virginia Company. An accident of history, then, inspired one of the greatest plays in the Western tradition, just as that same accident played a pivotal role in the history of the state of Virginia, the country of Bermuda, and the beginnings of Britain's global empire. Thank you. <laughs>